Driving Culture Forward. This is Hypebeast Radio. I'm Madrell Stinney. I'm Ben Rosen. We're sitting down with Jeff Staple. Jeff, how's it going? What up, what up? How you doing? I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Third so, man himself. Yeah. <laughs> so you've been traveling a lot lately. Can you, uh, so where have you gone in the past month, I guess? Well, in the past, yeah, the past two months have been crazy. Yeah. I've been in obviously New York, Tennessee, Chicago, Beijing, Dubai, Sao Paulo, LA, Las Vegas, Toronto, Canada, Virginia, DC. That's just in the last Man. like two yeah, two and that, months. And that's all like off of the you know, the success of the black pigeon dunk coming out. Like that's kind of yeah. what started like this whole traveling. Yeah. Half of it was um relaunching uh the Nike Black Pigeon, obviously, and <laughs> sort of like the the world release tour that that ensued. Yeah. Um but then, you know, I have uh involvement in other companies and stuff. So like mm-hmm. It was just, um, if if I knew I was going to be in Dubai, then it's like taking care of some of that stuff. If I yeah. knew I was going to be in Brazil, there's other work that needs to go there too. So like, it just sort of kept self-perpetuating. Yeah. And you yeah. were over in Dubai for Soul DXB. Correct. Yeah. How was that? Because that's like sort of a new, I guess, or if there's any listeners or whatever that aren't aware, that's kind of like a sneaker con, but for... Mm-hmm. Or street culture kind of convention, but yeah. for the Middle East region, what was that like? It was dope. I mean, uh, ironically, they've been doing it longer than most like sneaker cons, complex cons of the world. They're, this is their seventh year. Wow! Um, and it's cool because Dubai is sort of like this strange melting pot of another whole region of planet Earth that we don't really come across. You know, like um, my favorite part was meeting people from like you know Ethiopia, you know South Africa. Iran, Iraq, India, you know, and then of course all of Southeast Asia and Australia and New Zealand. So these are people like in one day you're meeting a guy from like, you know, Ethiopia and India and it's like, wow, I didn't even think I'd ever meet somebody from there, right, much yeah. less a fan, mm-hmm. much less someone who knows the culture like I thought y'all just trying to get food. I didn't know you're trying to get yeah. Jordans too, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like it's it's it shows like how narrow-minded Americans are yeah. because of the news that's fed to us of what culture must be like in those countries, right? We see them as like third world countries, you know, but no, you go there and it's like, holy cow, they know what's up, you know? Yeah. I think one of the, like I used to, I, I took this course once on like globalization and that entire, like the phenomenon. And there's this concept of something called like a counter flow where things, instead of going from like, you're saying like Western culture, I guess, as we would call it is like the dominant discourse but there's also like important counterflows, like literally, like you're saying, like people from the Middle East and yeah. Southeast Asia that do their own thing. What were some of like the cooler, like what were some of those experiences? Like who were some of the people that you talked to over there that were kind of like, I mean, mind blowing. The, the people there, were, it was a lot. I met a lot of people, and I didn't catch names specifically, um, but it was really overall like their vibe and their style because right. they have their own heritage, upbringing, religion and like beliefs and they're mixing it with the hype beast world. So you'll see like literally, you know, tartans, turbans and like, you know, sh- strange fabrics and wares, but then like mixed in with like stuff that you would see someone in Soho wearing. You yeah. know? So seeing that mix and that comes down to like music, food, fashion, everything was like so eye opening, you know. And then, you know, I was there with like um, you know, uh Biggs was there, Hiroshi was there, Don C was there. So like it was cool just to have us there and them and like the excitement that, um, you know, sort of bringing that to the table together was really, really interesting. Like the mix of it was cool. Yeah. And what's like the common, like, you know, just excitement about these new experiences um, from like, you know, you and your colleagues when you get to 
go to like you know these these conventions whether they be in dubai whether they be at another part of the world it's really shocking it's surprising you know like i think um it's just like when you see these kids like going crazy and like the the funny thing to me is like when they ask to take a picture yeah and when they're standing next to you and like they sort of have your their arm around you you know like shaking hands or whatever and like they're full-on shaking yeah you know and i'm just like dude i just design shoes and clothes like it's not that bad like i ain't barack or like i'm not making platinum albums like i'm yeah. not young thug yeah i'm not rich chigga <laughs> previously known as uh or the now known as known. No, as Bri- what is it brian yes, yeah. brian. <laughs> i ain't brian you know um <laughs> so it's cool just to see how much that just goes you know i don't ever take that to like let it get to my head what mm-hmm. it tells me is how far the culture has gone as you've said yeah. you know um, and how much it affects their whole lives. Like you, you always hear the story of like, um, you know, I was a lawyer, I was working in a, in a business firm or whatever. And now like, because of everything that you guys have done and hype beast and what I've learned, I've now like left all that to follow my passions, hmm. you know, which I think is a good segue into what we're going to announce. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true. Definitely. And um, I mean, should we get right into it? <laughs> yeah, I guess we can. Yeah. So yeah. actually, one of the things that you were doing while you were over in Dubai yep. and then later in LA, like, I think, and you know, hopefully when you go to Toronto and all that, yeah, and you have everywhere. all the other destinations is that you were working on a, a show with us yeah. called The Business of Hype, right? Exactly. Yeah. So let's, what's sort of like an intro? What can you tell us about the show as like a, a primer? So I've I've always been a fan of podcasts. I'm a huge like, you know, nonstop just digesting podcasts. Mm-hmm. And when Hypebeast Radio came out, um, you know, you guys were doing a great job and uh Kevin who's the um founder of Hypebeast and I sat down and you know, we talked about the idea of maybe me doing a separate show that focused I mean, really Kevin was nice and he was like whatever you want, just like think of something. And my perspective was that I've spent the last two decades um, not only building my brand, but also encouraging others to do the same, as I just mentioned, you know, go out there, you know, jump off, jump into the pool and just like see what happens, right? Get so, out of the cubicle. Exactly. So now it's been, you know, so many years in and now the common thread that I get is like, okay, Jeff, I quit my job. What do I do now? Yes. <laughs> like I printed a t-shirt. What do I do now? Like, oh shit, I didn't think about like, you know, well, did you get your tax ID number? What's that? Wow. Uh, business checking account? How do I do that? Okay. All right. All right. Now here comes 2.0 of Hypebeast, which is the business of hype. And so this show focuses on talking to experts, but really, really getting into the weeds and the nitty gritty of how you did this. Like how many credit cards did you max out? Is that the way to do it? Should you get partners? Should you not have partners? Should you take out a loan? Like all of these really base questions about sales and like hardship that in like normal interviews you don't want to talk about because you want to big yourself up right. but on this show it really talks about the realities of running a business so yeah, i think that's an important that. point i think Definitely. a lot of people do gloss over like the boring bits yeah you know and the I thing mean? is on on social and in press nobody wants to talk about like yo what up here's my here's my credit card balance like here's yeah. so much i owe like no one wants to show that you want to show that you're living a good life and like it's very polished you know but the reality is, is behind that there's a lot of of like eating shit that people have to do, you know? Um, and there's not really that many platforms to speak on that. And, you know, I think Hypebeast Radio is like the perfect place to do it. Yeah, I mean, you brought up a good point. I think like, you know, one of the good things that are going to come out of this podcast is that you've been around in the game for so long and been able to see like, you know, brands come and go. And you've been like able just to be here. Yeah. So I, mean, I, I think like, you know, like a lot of 
like new people that are starting out their own business, they'll be able to see like how can you sustain a business, a successful business, or just even be in the game this long. Yeah, exactly. And I also want to eventually investigate um, into how the business of hype has affected non quote unquote hype brands. Mm, so like, yeah. how has this culture affected? the Samsungs of the world, the Gatorades of the world, you know, the, the bows of the world, you know, like everything just, is a drop now. Everything. Like everything you have is, limited yeah. edition, like yogurt, toilet paper, like everything. Right. So like, how is, I want to talk to all of these people and see like how this culture has driven their business. Yeah. It should be dope. I'm, I'm honored to be on it, um, to be a part of it. And, uh, I figured no one's going to interview me on my own show. Yeah. So maybe this is, Sort this of is the, like the pilot. <laughs> this is 0.1 episode of the business <laughs> of hype, sort of. And you guys are going to interview me, so that's dope. Yeah, I think, actually, that's, that's a good segue for sort of like the next bit is, you know, we always like to get sort of to the origin story of the people that come on here because I think, like you said, a lot of the stuff gets glossed over. A lot of it isn't in the press release. So, you know, going back to sort of like day zero, what, what was sort of like your foot in the door moment with streetwear culture? My foot in the door came a very, very long time ago in the 90s. Um, and really, my background consists of, uh, consisted of two things. It was, uh, I was a graphic designer at Parsons School of Design, and I was working at a graphic design firm in, in Soho, two blocks away from here, 595 Broadway. Um, and uh, so I had that sort of traditional, pure book publishing graphic design, and I was doing an internship at a streetwear brand called PNB Nation, which at the time... No one knew, but it ended up being one of like the sort of grassroots like pillars of street culture, right? Um, and to be honest, when I got the job there, like I wasn't really there was no street culture, so I wasn't like looking for a streetwear job because there's no there was no thing called streetwear, mm -hmm. right? It was they, you had the big thing back then was um, urban wear, so like Fat Farm, Peli Peli, Fubu, Sean John were like big and that was youth fashion and then you had people who rebelled against that look but came coming from the same mentality and that was like triple five soul pnb nation eric hayes union like these sort of like 1.0 grandfathers of you know what became known as street culture uh stussy was another one right but there wasn't enough of them there wasn't enough brands, nor there were there enough customers to even call this a thing yet. Like literally, when I wore a Triple Five Soul shirt or a PNB shirt, if I was walking anywhere in the street and I saw another person wearing that shirt, we can stop and have a conversation because we were one of a group of like literally a hundred people that shopped at Union and was like, "Oh, you know Vito, you know, oh yeah, yeah, yeah," you know, like. Imagine you did that to every kid you saw wearing Supreme today. You, you wouldn't get anywhere, no way. right? So like, it was really like a tight-knit culture. Um, and that's, that was my first exposure to it. And when I worked at PNB, I was like, I love the fact that these guys are using fashion as a medium to express these ideas. You know, that's really cool to me. So it was taking what I learned in print graphic design, but then applying it to fashion. You know, and that's really kind of what streetwear is to me. And you started, um, you know, Staple Pigeon from screen printing your very first shirt and then having people react to that shirt, correct? Yeah, that's, that, was the, that was the impetus behind that. I mean, I was going to Parsons at the time. They had a silkscreen lab, and I was working at PNB, and I was like, I want to try this. So mm -hmm. I made my own shirt and, and gave it out to people. Yeah. Um, and it was really just an art project, you know. Um, and, the, you know, as, as the story goes, 
PN, uh, Parsons stopped me from printing shirts. They didn't want me to print shirts in the silkscreen lab. Really? Yeah. It was only set up for paper. Yeah. So they were like, you can't print shirts. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but I'm doing it. Like, it's working. <laughs> it's, it's working. So why can't I do it? I Technically, I paid for all of this and your yeah. salary. And yeah, yeah, my tuition. Lab. Yeah, my tuition covers all of this. So like, mm-hmm. why can't I do it? And they're like, you just can't. Yeah. I'm like, I fucking hate when they say you just can't. So... How many shirts were you print like screen printing at the time? Twelve. Twelve. Like okay. twelve shirts at so a time. So it's not like it was like a crazy no, number. Yet. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Trapping out of the school like <laughs> no. print lab. I wasn't neek yet. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, like <laughs> um and so me and my friend who was a classmate, we would leave the window unlocked in the silkscreen lab mm-hmm. and like open. And then at night we would go in and like break into the silkscreen lab and when all the teachers and security guards left, we would just be printing shirts all mm-hmm. night long. So that's how we started the the business. Uh, he had his own brand, and it didn't nothing happened with it. But it was just the two of us in the lab printing shirts, um, and I, ha- I had no intention of making a business. I was just wanting to give them to my friends, you know. Mm-hmm. And like I thought it's cool that they just wear like a photo tee or whatever that I made. Um, and it was on uh, a fateful day, March seventh, nineteen ninety seven. Um, it was my birthday, and uh, you know my my girlfriend at the time was getting her hair done. Um, so, you know, for my birthday, we're going to go out that night and shit, you know? So I was like, all right, I'm going to walk around Soho and kill time while you get your hair done. I was wearing one of the shirts that I printed and I walked into the triple five soul store, which was on Lafayette and Houston, um, walked into that store and the manager of the, of the store, his name's, his name is a Deflon Shala. (laughs) That was his name. Uh, he was like, yo, that's a dope shirt. Where'd you get that? And I was like, I, I made it at school. And he's like, make 12 and we'll sell them in here. And I was like... All right, cool. That's dope. Um, and so I made 12, you know, and had to break into school, make 12 shirts, you know. That night. Yeah. Um, and business was open from there. And 12 sold out. Uh, he ordered another 12, 24. And then uh, Vito, who was the manager of Union on, over in Soho at the time, saw them and he was like, hey, we want some too. So then I had two accounts while I was breaking into Parsons, hand silk screening these t-shirts and sort of ping-ponging like 12, 24, 36. It sort of got up to like, I could get up to like 50 shirts that I could print out of school, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I was fulfilling these orders and that's how business began. Now you mentioned like, you know, like like these terms that you're learning, of course, over the years and stuff, um, like, you know, accounts or like, you know, uh, just like the orders and stuff that you're receiving. I'm I'm sure like at the time it was just fun. Like you're like, wow, I get to make money off of selling these shirts. Like looking back, what were some of like the things that you've realized over time? Like, man, I should have did it this differently starting out. Um, I should have had somebody else just running all the numbers, really, you know, because I think it's rare when a creative can manage the books properly, like mm-hmm. the checkbooks and stuff like that. You know, here I am, you know, I'm thinking of these t-shirts, conceiving of them and then printing them and then making them and making sure like they're up to, up to the quality that I want at the time. Mm-hmm. And now I've, I've got them in a store. If the store is late on paying or doesn't pay or a check bounces, I don't care. Like, I'm like, I've made this thing and it's in a shop. My job is like mission accomplished, right? Yeah. You really need somebody else to be like, no, Jeff, they have to pay. Yeah. I don't care who they are. They have to pay the bill, right? And I'm like, why? Like, why? But there was no one like that. So when accounts wouldn't pay or like, you know, a, a check would bounce, to me, it'd be fine because they were like supporting the vision already. Mm-hmm. But that's not enough to run a business to just support the vision. You got to like fuel the engine. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like yeah. you need a left brain guy and a right brain yeah. guy. So I, I wished that like 
um, I had that foil to me that could like manage all of these things. Mm-hmm. And I didn't for like 15 years, wow. <laughs> which meant I had to learn it eventually. You know, mm-hmm. I learned about making payments, bouncing checks and stuff mm-hmm. like that and collecting. And it's not fun because how do you think about it? Like if you created this thing and you go to your store and you're like, Hey, buy this thing. Oh, by the way, you didn't pay the bill last time. It's awkward, right? It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. here, buy this, but fucking pay your bills. Oh, but support <laughs> this new thing. You need that good cop, bad cop. Sure. You yeah. know, you need that. Um, and I didn't have that. So, like, that was a learning that I wish. You know, I, and I hear a lot of young people starting brands now. They have, like, a partner that, like, is the business finance guy versus the creative guy. And I like seeing that, you know, because I think it's too difficult for everyone to wear all those hats. Yeah. I mean like, you know, and and this is great, like, you know, information for a lot of people that are starting brands like on Instagram, just because it's so easy to build a page out and then like, you know, produce some t-shirts and stuff. Yeah. Or Shopify. Like, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean the, you know, the sort of infamous story that people keep talking about recently is like Neek and antisocial. Right. So he's in essence, he's a victim of his own success. Right. Right. Like, what did he do wrong? He can't fulfill shirts fast enough. But that's because the demand is so high, which which probably meant that like and I haven't obviously talked to him about this, but like which probably meant that when he was just creating, he didn't think about warehousing, logistics, shipping, UPS and like customer service like you know, he's thinking of getting the shirts out there, not thinking that like someone might call and be like, "Hey, can I exchange this for a large?" like which is a normal Right. Business thing that you would do, but you're not thinking about that when you're making a brand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like he only had the ideas guy and he didn't have the, yeah. the logistics guy. No one ever said like, hey, Nick, what if uh, his PayPal account bounces or like doesn't link up or like, you know, what if he wants to return it? Mm-hmm. Like, wow. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, maybe one person will do that. No, let's say like 10,000 people do that. Yeah. Then Which does problem. Happen. Yeah. It's like, oh, shit. I didn't even think about that. You know, yeah. so it's like um, having that foresight and vision, I think it's key, but. On the other hand, I got to say, as a devil's advocate, this is streetwear. <laughs> so there is something to be said about like how fucked up the whole process is that makes his brand in particular look like even more authentic that it's fucked up. Like if it was almost too slick, if it was almost like Amazon Prime next day and it came with like a return shipping label. Then a lot of people probably wouldn't want it. Kids would be like, yeah. wow, this is mad like easy slick. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know? right. So maybe there is something like homegrown about mm-hmm. that shit that makes it dope. Yeah, I mean that that does bring a, a good point because it's like you have brands like Antisocial where they're notorious for like, you know, their shipping, but then it's like you also have brands like Supreme where everything sells out. So it's like kind of you know, double edged, double edged sword. And Supreme case. has its own issues. Like when you go on the app and like you try to, you know, end the lines and mm-hmm. like there's, they don't have it figured out either. Yeah, right. they're a victim of their own success in a lot of ways. Exactly. As well. um, but sometimes I got to say, like, you know, like with, you know, Adidas confirmed or like Nike sneakers app mm-hmm. and how when they drop something, it's like a shit show also. Yeah. Like a part of me thinks, like, like how is Nike and the like mm-hmm. not figuring this out? Like how do they not have a solution yeah. when like, Kim Kardashian can move like a million lipsticks in like a second, mm-hmm. like with no hitch at all. I kind of feel like there's some pre-programmed in stress factor. Just to make it. Just to make the the Twitter storms go off. The conversation. Yeah. Hating and, yeah, yeah. and make the conversation because come on, we're talking about click, add to cart, buy, credit. Like it's, and yes, there's a lot of it, but there's not more than like commodity stock for TD Ameritrade. 
True. Right? And like you never hear some stockbroker be like, I couldn't buy that stock, man. Like, no, they, <laughs> transactions always go through. Bloomberg, they all figured it out. You're yeah. telling me we can't do it for like cause Jordans, but mm-hmm. like <laughs> Tesla can do it for stocks. Like, That's true. Doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I do think that there, <laughs> it is an issue of scale more than anything because I think that, and, and I think that when you're talking about like starting a homegrown company, in in your school's print lab it's like if someone all of a sudden was like hey can we have 750 of those you'd be like while you're at parsons you would be like i have no clue how i would do that well but i'm sure you would probably try it though that's exactly what did happen okay so so the next phase was like i was selling to those two shops and i think um i bobito had a store too on 9th street uh and i sold to his shop so i had like three stores in the city Mm -hmm. um and then uh one night a japanese guy calls me at home he gets my home. This is so far back, dude, that the hang tag on my T-shirts had my home landline phone number on oh, it. Oh, wow. No website. Yeah. No email. That's just, bold. Just a... No, no. There was no other way. Right. This is 96, 97. Yeah. You didn't put an email address on there, you yeah, know? Yeah, true. So, like, I had my home phone number on these hang tags, and a Japanese guy calls me at home uh, late night, and I'm like, uh, hello. And he's like, oh, hi. I'm from Tokyo. Uh, I want to order your shirt. I was like, whoa, that's awesome. This dude wants to order one of my shirts from Tokyo. Like, all right, cool, bet. <laughs> how many do you need? Yeah, I was like, how many you want? He's like, uh, 1,000. So it went from like 36 to 1,000. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, and that's Tall where I ask. <laughs> and I couldn't, I, like, I actually pictured myself breaking into school and like, with like 1,000 shirts. Yeah. Like, you know, I was like, okay, this is where I had to make the tough decision of like, um, I could either f- turn down the order, fold up, and just sort of, Except that this is just going to be a hobby business, right? Or go for it and be like, "All right, let's." What do I have to do, right? So mm-hmm. I'm going to. This meant quitting school, which I did. This meant moving my production to a silk screener, finding an actual factory, you know, getting like professional labels made, like opening up a UPS account. There's a lot of things that go. You don't just take a thousand shirts to the post office, right? Mm-hmm. Like you got to do things right now. Yeah. So that was a sort of monumental shift in my thinking where I was like, I got a business. This is a business. I'm going to treat it like one. Parsons will always be here. School will always be here to accept my tuition money. I'm going to take this window of opportunity while I got it now. Yeah. I mean, it basically sounds like when startups move out of the garage, you know what I mean? Like we have to take this seriously now. So what was like when you started taking it seriously, what was the first big obstacle or like lesson that you learn from the fashion industry once you were in it? The first big learning came from that thousand shirt order. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to date myself again. The way we found silk screeners back in that day was the yellow pages, the big ass yellow book. You flip to S and silk screeners and you just look through all these silk screeners and it's like playing Russian roulette. Like there's, there's nothing to determine what makes one silk screener better than the other when you're just looking at a listing. So, I just started calling them and comparing prices. And I remember I found a guy in New York who was decent. And then I found another guy in Miami who was way cheaper. Right. And I'm like, all right, New York guy could go there. True. But it's more expensive. So I'm going to go with this Miami guy who's way cheaper. So I went with the Miami guy, ran the whole thousand shirt order with him. And as, as it happens, the thousand shirt order was arriving at my studio apartment in <laughs> Chinatown. Uh, two blocks away from here, Broadway and White Street. <laughs> um, they were arriving, the shirts were arriving the same day the Japanese guy was flying from Tokyo to New York to accept the order. Jesus. Mm-hmm. So they, I had like basically an hour window when I get the shirts and then I just 
move them back out to the guy, right? So the shirts come in, I open up the boxes, and the front print of the shirt, which was supposed to be a center front design, is like in the armpit. Oh, shit. And the sleeve hit is like on the nipple. Oh, Jesus. All thousand are fucked up. And dude, Japanese dude is on his way over. And I'm shitting my pants. Because, <laughs> by the way, back up a little bit. The only way I was able to pay for this order was to convince the Japanese guy to give me half of the money up front. Of course, yeah. So I've literally used his money yeah. to fuck up a whole order. <laughs> I felt like such an asshole. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so, and I don't, there's, you know, I'm a pretty good con man. <laughs> like, I can kind of wiggle my way out of anything. But the fact that he's downstairs like ringing my bell and I'm looking at a thousand messed up shirts. Like I just have to fess up. Like there's no yeah. way I can hustle and sweet talk my way out of this shit. So I go downstairs and I'm, I remember his name is Gory. I was like, Gory, man, I met like, I fucked up. Like, look at these shirts. And he was like, Holy shit, you know? And thankfully he was a nice guy and he was like, uh, okay, I go back to Tokyo and fix the shirts and then, you know, I'll come back. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But that meant whatever profit I would have made went into like yeah, the reorder. Yeah. yeah. So fuck the guy in Miami. Should have went with the guy in New York in the first place so that I can quality control it and pay more. The lesson I learned there, you get what you pay for, which is like a sort of golden rule of like business. But it was a harsh lesson on order number one that like I might have saved 30 cents a shirt, but the heartache that I went through and the headache that I went through was so not worth it. Like yeah. just pay to get it done right. And I remember I remember um James from Supreme who at the time was at Stussy, he taught me a little bit later. Um he gave me those wise words exactly. He's like I will pay to get it done right. Like I will pay double or triple to make sure that it is done perfectly right. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I learned that lesson. And speaking of silk screen shirts actually, one of the cooler like I'm big into like the bootleg whatever kind of like bootleg shirts and stuff. And there was a really cool one that came out recently that just said uh, Jeff Staple introduced uh, Angelo to James, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we had a bit of a conversation mm. with Angelo about that when he was on this show. Yeah. But we kind of wanted to hear your side of that story because like you're saying, like you kind of played the role of a connector yeah. with a lot of the streetwear guys from early on up until now. Yeah. What was that like? I don't know what it was like. It, like I think people make a bigger deal out of it than it is. You know, like It's probably just socializing for you at that point. I don't, I don't know if it's socializing. I think, I mean, if I had to really break it down, like, I guess James has seen me around long enough to know that, like, you don't last in this industry by being an idiot and mm -hmm. surrounding yourselves with idiots, right? So if I'm saying I vouch for this person, Angelo, he's probably not an idiot too, right? right? So I think James just sort of adds that up really quick in his head that, like, you know, he's not an idiot, He's probably not hiring idiots. And Angelo and I were working together at the Fader, and he was helping out at Sportswear International, as, as Angelo said. Um, so I did introduce them. But I think the shirt, the T-shirt that came out is, like, weird, yeah. <laughs> like, to be honest. And, of course, I knew that when I saw that shirt, I knew that people were going to think questions. that. Well, people were going to think that I made the shirt, which I saw that, like, comment, like, yeah. oh, just, like, making this shirt. now. I was like, of course not. But, um I just think it's a it's like because of the reputation of Supreme and the reputation that Angelo has now and how sort of on fire he is. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like this big thing that like how do you even introduce someone to Supreme? You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, so yeah. but really it's just like 
oh, James, you should hire this person, you know? It's a letter of recommendation. Yeah, yeah. I th- you know, like another little known fact is that I introduced Timberland to Supreme. Really? So like every Timberland collab that's come out is because of an introduction that I made from so from James to the Timberland Corporation and, and Andy Friedman, you know? Um, and they just had Timberland back then, you got to remember, as like a sort of granola mountain brand, had no authorization to be able to walk in and like try to figure out how to make this intro so it was just sort of like a very simple vouch on my part that like hey timberland wants to do cool things and great things and james i know you're very selective but i figure this might be one that you might be interested in yeah and it happened and that's it simple and it was the first one that um had the leopard sort of like mohair on the back wow Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. those those first three were because of Mm -hmm. that introduction wow yeah and it's fine i don't ask for a check or ask for notoriety or ask for a t-shirt to proclaim it. Uh, it just is goodwill that I think like I'm all about putting good shit out in the universe and one day it'll come back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And being like, you know, this connector and having these ideas and, um, you know, just being able to, able to churn out like great content from it. Uh, you also have like staple design, which is like your creative agency. Like yeah. how far into, you know, starting up your business, selling T-shirts, did you realize that, hey, I can also make, you know, my ideas a business as well? Right away. I mean, um, like I said, I was a trained graphic designer first, mm-hmm. and I never thought I was a fashion designer. So while I had a f- fashion line that was making money, at the same time, and kind of because of the T-shirts that were selling around town, local bands and artists and clubs and restaurants would ask me like to design their menu slash album cover slash logo right so i already had this little mini like design business yeah Yeah, of like designing stuff like dj soul i designed his first mixtape covers like fifth platoon neil armstrong raucous records the fader magazine um all of these like were you know they're big deals now but back then like raucous records was like nothing like they were like we're trying to figure this shit out and eventually they signed most depth talib quali company flow like common you know like yeah but in the beginning they were just like we need help <laughs> we need an album design and i was like okay no graphic design i'm a fan of of the music and the culture i'll help out and they're like dope and then it got to be where like raucous was like well you make great shirts we need merch mm-hmm. can you help us with like raucous merch so that's how that happened you know um but There was a time maybe like one year in where I was like, man, this is like the shirts are getting hectic, like lots of orders coming in and lots of quote unquote clients coming in on the design side. I need to decide here what I'm going to do, like drop one, drop the other one, or if I'm going to try to do it both meaningfully, like I really have to concentrate on a way of doing it both. And I really looked long and hard in the mirror and I was like, I love both like a lot. Because they both offer different things. Like your own fashion brand is kind of like whatever you want to do, whatever you want to wear, you make it, you manifest it, and it's out there. The other one, someone is paying you to do what they tell you to do with your aesthetic input. But it's very client-driven, like make the client happy. Feedback. Yeah, and there's a part of that that I love. There's a part of that where like it's like less creative but more like problem-solving, you know? 
And I didn't want to give either of them up. So I was like, all right, I'm going to start making key hires and bring on some some freelance designers, bring on some people to help me pack orders, do sales. Sales of the clothing line was one of the first things that I wanted to relinquish because mm-hmm. um, it's very hard as a creative to go and try to sell your own brand and get that rejection and stuff like that. Yeah. So I wanted to get someone else to do sales. Um, so yeah, so I started bringing in people and tried to create like this double-headed monster. Mm-hmm. Um, and to this day, you have Staple Pigeon, which is the clothing line that bears the pigeon mark. And then you have Staple Design Studio, which is our boutique creative agency that does work for clients all over the world. Mm-hmm. And who are some of the clients that you've worked with on, on the side? Because you know, I, mean, I know you mentioned Timberland and, and you yeah. probably got some people in the streetwear space. Like- yeah, a lot of people in um, sort of uh, what you would call fashion, lifestyle, you know, like Burton Snowboard, Timberland, um, obviously like Nike, Reebok, New Era, all of that like ilk is has been clients or is a client, but more so on the like um, consumer goods side. So like Pepsi, um, Microsoft, uh, a lot of alcohol brands, you know, um, Remy Martin, Martel, uh, Corvassier, um, and then... Uh, more recently, like car automobile brands like Toyota, um, Oakley is another one that is a client, long-standing client of ours. Um, recently, we just signed Bose headphones, which is exciting. Nice. Yeah. So these are projects that we'll do that may or may not see the light of day. So the way I like to structure these is like when you hire Staple Design Studio, you don't necessarily get Pigeon or Jeff Staple. Because that, like, a lot of brands come in and say, like, we want to work with Staple Design. Mm-hmm. All right, so when are we going to get the Pigeon one? Like, yeah, yeah, oh, it doesn't. Yeah. It kind of doesn't work like that. I think I, it's a collab, basically. Yeah, and I have to draw the line on Church and State from like consulting versus co-branding. You know, right? Yeah. Because a lot of times a brand will come in that is not ready for um, this collab hype beast world. It's I always tell them it's my job to get your brand hot enough. So that we can do a collab, and I'm not, I'm not trying to like boost my own ego. I'm just telling you that like, you can do a collab, and it will fall flat on its ass and be meaningless to both me and your brand because your brand wasn't ready for it. You know what yeah. I mean? Let's get your brand ready for it and primed so that it's ready for a post on Hypebeast. Like that's the goal. You know what I mean? For a lot of these brands that are like trying to just figure out their way, a lot of brands like sort of lost their way. You know? Yeah. Um, so. Um, what we do is try to like help them navigate in this very fickle like youth millennial whatever code word you want to use now but like we just try to help them navigate and a lot of times with these brands it ends up the problem ends up being too many people internally have just been sitting and looking at this brand for too many fucking years mm. and they need an outsider to be like hold the phone this is what your brand actually means to real people on the street that aren't in like in a boardroom right yeah, now yeah in like <clears throat> 500 miles from here in a forest yeah because that's where usually where corporate headquarters are right so like here's what kids on fulton street are saying about your brand really that's what they think yes that's what they think you know it's like and then it's fixing it from there so it's really mostly a reality check but it's also you know i'm not going to discredit myself like it takes a lot to live in that reality all the time that's why we call it street culture because mm-hmm we come from the street. Like we are listening to what's happening on the street, whereas they're listening to what's happening on wall street or a boardroom, which is totally removed from reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to the story, you go from being a one man crew to having like your own staff now, both for like, you know, your clothing brand as well as your creative agency. Yep. Like what were some of like, you know, the things that you learned early on doing that? Uh, great question. One of the first things I learned early on was 
having a, a team around me of like, you know, six to eight people. Yeah. And I'm doing everything and no one's doing anything. <laughs> and that's not their fault. Yeah. That's my fault because right. I couldn't delegate. Mm-hmm. That was like one of the, another early learning was that like, man, I've hired all these people, but I just came from this mentality of like, I'm a loner and I'm doing this all by myself. So now it's difficult to like dole that work out and trust other people. And that took me a really long time to learn. Like it took me probably a good seven, eight years. You know, not to say that like people were working for me and didn't do shit for seven, eight years, but they weren't doing what they could have been doing. Right. You know, um, and How many really, employees do you have now, by the way? So I have Staple Design, I have Staple Pigeon, and I have Read Space, which is slash Extra Butter slash TGS. Right. So you could say that I oversee like as many as 60 people. Right. But they, I have generals in charge of each one. So there's like a head of clothing, a head of design, and a head of retail mm-hmm. that sees, that oversees everything. You know, the, the minutia. But it's my job to stay 30,000 feet and, like, make sure that everything is in order from the top. But when I need to, I need to get down into the weeds and, like, you know, like, today there was, like, a leak at Extra Butter because a pipe broke. So, like, I'm talking to the contractor on how to fix that, right? So, like, it gets into the weeds sometimes when it's an emergency. But I try to stay up high because I think that's where I can benefit the brand the most. Yeah, and this is like learning through through experience, of course, like over the years and stuff on, like, you know, the best practices on how to do this. Yeah, I don't even I don't know if this is the stuff that they teach you in business school. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I wouldn't know because yeah, I'm either. a I'm a double dropout, you know, from college, so yeah. I have no degree, but like um you would hope that this is the stuff that they do teach you about mm-hmm. like management and you know delegation and accountability and all that shit, you know, mm-hmm. but I learned it. That's why unfortunately it takes me 7 8 years to figure it out and learn it the hard way. Um and quite honestly, that's why I'm so passionate about like passing the torch to the next generation and like, cause I don't want the next kid to do it in eight years. I want him to do it in one year, you know what I did. Um, and you know, there's actually like an underlying like greedy reason why I'm doing that. Like it sounds very ph- philanthropic, but I'm not going to front here and be like, I'm, you know, like the Oprah of this industry and I want to like, just make everyone like happy and successful. Like there is a reason why. And, and I'll tell you what it is. The reason is that, if it took me 20 years to get to this level and it takes the next generation 20 years to get to this level, that means our whole industry is fucked. Yeah. yeah. Right. There can't, it can't sustain. And I don't want to be the only streetwear brand. We need an industry. You know, we need streetwear stores and streetwear fans and streetwear customers so that I'm one of the brands. Right. Yeah. Like an ecosystem. Exactly. You know, like, Uber only exists because there's a taxi and limousine service and there's a lift and there's a, you know, like it's competition. I don't want to be the only guy on the block, right? So I need the next generation to do it in half the time or one quarter of the time I did it so that when I go to like an agenda show, there's like thousands of brands. If I was at agenda and I'm the only brand, then no one comes to the agenda show, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of greedy on my part. It's kind of selfish, but... It's like true. I want to help the next generation so that we have an ecosystem to supply off of in the future. And, and speaking of ecosystems and competition and all that, and you mentioned Read Space earlier. What, when did you decide to take the plunge into like brick and mortar retail? And what was that experience like? So that happened in 2002, early, very early 2002. Um, really, the, the impetus for Read Space was 9 11. Um, 9-11 happened and our office at the time was on Division 
and Canal, which is like really far downtown, right in the shadow of the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. And that's where our offices were. When, when towers fell, that whole neighborhood became a shit show. You know, like you couldn't even go there all the time. Like the cops kept shutting it down. When you were there, the power kept going out. You know, like there was this weird dust like all the time, you know. So I knew I had to move. Um, and at the time, I'm DJing at this place called Swim. And uh, this is important to know that this is pre-Uber and pre-Serato, okay? So pre-Serato meaning I have to carry like eight crates of records with me everywhere I go. Pre-Uber meaning at 4 o'clock, you just, 4 a.m., you're just standing there waiting for a yellow cab to come, hopefully. So sometimes I'd have to be standing there for like 20, 30 minutes Jesus. waiting for like a cab to hopefully come. So imagine me, edge of the curb, eight crates of records, just hoping for a cab to come by, right? Because there's no technology to call one up. And as I'm walking around waiting for a cab, I look into this window and I'm looking at what is to become Reed Space. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, this space is dope. Like we can move our office here. I can have a store. And all of my fellow cohort streetwear brands that have trouble finding a home, like this can be a home for all of them. You know, and all my friends who had brands back then, like Ten Deep and um, Milk Crate Athletics and Double Down and like you know BM Basement Social Studies Charismatic, like all of these old school streetwear brands, like we could get together and just have a store here, mm-hmm. and that was the basis for Reed Space. So like half of it was staple design in the back, and then the other half was a multi-brand retail store um, that carried not only clothes but like whenever I go to Japan, like I bring back mixtapes and magazines and weird trinkets and toys made by this company called Medicom that nobody ever heard of, you know, like, so it was just sort of like this early cultural hub. Um, and if it wasn't for nine 11, to be honest, I probably would have just stayed in the old office and not really had a need to move, but I saw this opportunity. Um, and it was a risk cause like, just to give you an idea, my old rent down in the old space mm-hmm. was like $2,000 a month. And this new rent at Reed Space was 8000 So it was four times the money. But luckily, the clothing line was doing quite well, and the design business was going quite well. So the risk on the retail side, I wasn't so worried about stuff not selling. Mm-hmm. It was just like, I think I could swing this with the money I make just from clothing and design. Let's just have this creative playground available for you know these brands to like represent in. Mm-hmm. And that was wow. how Reed Space was born. Yeah, now having like you know a store um, of your own, like, what did you learn within the first three years, few years? Um, the biggest learning that I can think of right now um, that I that I came away with for Reed was that uh, you can't do the buying for yourself. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, you have a look, you have a look, I have a look, right? You can't really make a successful store off of buying only stuff that you would wear. And that was difficult for me to understand because you know you're an artiste and you're an egomaniac and you think like no I have to love everything right well guess what everyone who walks into your store is not you and they might like other things so you might have to buy something from a brand that you actually don't like which is difficult for some people to understand you know um, and I was buying everything for myself and it soon came to be where like uh, everything that I really really loved wasn't selling and everything that I didn't really love was selling the most. So that's when I brought in a buyer, someone to just be like, do all the buying. I can inform him and I can pick stuff whenever I want, but it really needs to be this agnostic sort of eye. And if you look at any great store, there is like the owner and then there is like the buyer, you know, Um, 
like there's like the Poggy of the world or like the Sarah of the Colette, you know, like the sort of curator, but like the owner is not sitting there buying stuff because that's too narrow minded. So that's what I learned with Reed. Yeah. And you kind of just relinquish a little bit more control. Again, the same lesson about, you know, um, delegation and like letting things go. Um, Yeah. But there's nothing like having a retail store where like you really get that firsthand emotional sort of like feedback right away on what you're putting out there. It's really dope. And I'm, it's sad to say that retail now is, is hitting like really tough times, especially with brick and mortar um, and, you know, Amazon and online shopping. But like, I think there's still a big space for something like that. Yeah. I think that was probably something we were going to touch on in the next couple questions really yeah. was like how, and cause I think read space is closed down. Right. And, yeah. and we've got, what exactly is TGS? Because I remember we we spoke about that when that was kind of percolating, like right before that came through. Yeah, and and I think what was what's the general what's the breakdown of what TGS is? That's you and extra butter as well. Yeah, TGS is a umbrella of retail stores. Basically, right. there's Rise, there's Rooted, there's Ren Arts, there's Extra Butter, and then Reed Space joined that sort of contingency um, with the idea that first it would join. And the good thing about being under an umbrella is that you share back-end logistics. And what that means is like, there's things like warehousing and cardboard boxes and payroll and you know things like that, where like, if each of these six different stores had six different warehouses, six different UPS accounts, it's kind of like retarded, right? So like if we all shared those back-end resources, instead of, we're now paying literally one sixth of that because we're sharing it. Right. And the fronts are all unique and different. So it's kind of like a common diversification. Like it's a common business thing. It rarely happens in, in streetwear, but you know, even there was even a time where like, you know, Stussy, Supreme and Union were all under this one umbrella, hmm. you know, to save for the same reason, really, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's something that happens. And uh, in, in joining this group because extra butter and read space were sitting on the same street in the same neighborhood um, and other factors like because our rent was increasing, our lease was up for renewal. It made sense to not cannibalize the two stores and close read space for now, concentrate on extra butter, which we spent the last year doing. So we just reopened it. It's uh, newly renovated. It's amazing. Um, new brand assortment, everything. It's dope. And so now this year in 2018, the goal is to now reopen Reed Space in a new location with a new concept. Because I think when Reed Space opened 15 years ago, it was like a very different, unique thing. Mm-hmm. And then I think the whole retail industry caught up, you know. Um, and now I think if Reed Space is going to continue, then it should sort of throw the marker at like what 10 years from now retail should be like again. Right. Or doesn't need to exist you know but i think it should attempt to do that and do you think that since like you said like it's really been tough it's been a tough couple years for brick and mortar like you said with e-commerce and all that do you think that a lot more of these companies and brands in the streetwear space will make moves toward umbrellas do you think it's yeah like oh it's for sure happening yeah and i don't i know a lot of them right like they're already happening they're just not publicized they're not publicized and I don't want to be the one to publicize them, but there's lots yeah. of umbrellas already existing that might be unbeknownst to the listeners. But there's yeah. nothing wrong with it. I mean, it's just... Because I think, like, the new leader group is probably, I think, one of the few that... Which one's that? What I are think they? that I, if it's not a new leader, it's New Guard or something. That's Marcelo Berlon and Heron and Off-White. Right, right, right. Yeah. And they're all, all produce in, like, Milan. the same... Yeah. Camp. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Same building in Milan, basically. Exactly, yeah. There you and go. I think that that's probably one of the few that 
isn't necessarily well known, yeah. but it's like one of but those. But you just blew like, it up. Oops. <laughs> I mean, people. Well, no, yeah, they, they have a website. It's not. It's not. It's, yeah. not <laughs> it's not like it's not like they're the Illuminati. I think like whenever you watch somebody's Instagram story while they're there, it's like yeah. the elevator yeah. has three buttons. And they I'll give you. The... I'll give you another one. Like then this one's quite known, but like you know, neighborhood double taps, F par Luker, right? SVG mm-hmm. are all under the same umbrella. Mm-hmm. You know, and that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's not like when you walk into the neighborhood showroom, like you see all the brands, you know, right. right. So it, it happens. And I, I'd like to see more of that happening actually. Um, in fact, I, this is like, uh, kind of a future vision I have for staple. Like the brand is like to become, take what I've learned. And instead of just like sort of giving out the advice, which I'm happy to keep doing, but like, I think bringing people under an umbrella and sort of cultivating the new is, is kind of an interesting business model. Cause in this business of hype, I feel like brands can maybe only go up to a certain point in terms of revenue and sales before they start to not be cool. It's just law of supply and demand, right? right? So if you have a brand that you're building and it gets up to a certain point and it's like, okay, if it goes any higher, you're going to start losing your core audience. Therefore, you can't make more money on this brand. The bubble will, per- will burst. Yeah. So how do you make more money? Start another brand or bring in another brand and bring and bring that up. So now you've got five brands all doing a a relatively small amount, but good energy, good hype, good brand equity. But you've got this diversified portfolio versus one like mega monolith, one monolith Ed Hardy Von Dutch brand. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we're discussing like you know the potential opening of like Reed Space 2.0. It's like you know. Now, now you're being placed in this whole modern day age of streetwear and stuff. Like, what are you excited about? You know, opening up Reed Space again uh, in the future. Um, I'm excited about making a uh, a physical space where a lot of the stuff that I do in talks um, and on podcasts and on you know Skillshare and stuff like that, like there's a physical house for this for this activity to happen. And not only me preaching to you guys, but also a place where like other people can do the same and um, I don't want to give away too much, but the idea is after you gain the knowledge and learn it, now how do you get your hands dirty and actually apply it in a physical space? I think that's like the future of quote-unquote retail. It's not money being made from like buying item at the cashier, but it's like making money off of like the experiences in a transaction. That's the transaction is the experience, not a commodity being passed in forth, back and forth. I think... Um, it's similar to like a museum model, right? Right. So you go to a museum, you gain an experience and the museum makes a little bit of extra money when you buy the t-shirt at the end, right? Exit through the gift shop. Exactly. That's your merch. That's your memento that you experience this thing. But without the whole museum experience, why would anyone buy the museum t-shirt? Right. Right. So imagine read space being this act activation activity experience center and hey, if you want to buy a memento when you leave, please do so. But really, it's all about the experience. Yeah, I think a really good example of that might be like the when Balenciaga had that whole setup at Colette last year, mm-hmm. where they had the you know do make your own graphic T shirt, and they kind of like literally give you the software to yeah. make your own basic blank, and uh-huh. then they printed it in front of you. Oh, that, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it was like I mean, we saw videos and stuff of it, and it's, right. it was really sort of like you go in for the experience of being like. 
you know, I could probably make a t-shirt like that and charge X hundred dollars for it. And then they let you do that. They yeah. put the tools right there and they're like, hey, like here's 27 preloaded graphics. Here's all the Balenciaga logos you want. Throw it all or as much or as little onto a t-shirt as you want and you can buy it at the end. Yeah. You know? It's also, I mean, similar to uh, what Nike did with the Air Force One and how you could just do whatever right. you want with the Air Force One. Yeah, it's customization. This read space... 2.0 will be a little bit different. It's not so much about customization. It's more about like um, raw learning than like take our logos and product and do something with it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, like creating an actual experience. Yeah. Something that's interactive. And and maybe a little bit more academic, I would say, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, and, and speaking of this, what comes to mind is like, you know, Angelo and social studies and pop-ups and just like how they kind of like added like a new tier to what a pop-up experience could be like do you see like you know um retail stores like learning a lot from pop-up experiences like on how to like create demand like you know yeah i think i'm not a huge huge fan of pop-up culture um i feel like pop-ups are a current band-aid fix to the brick and mortar problem yeah Yeah. exactly like there's a problem and i think pop-ups are like the temporary fix Mm -hmm. but i don't and I could just be old, but like, I still like the idea that like, you know, like I remember Papito's footwork was three, two, three East ninth street. Like I always wanted to be there, you know, like, and I like the idea that there's these like permanent capitals that like, you can always just rely on like a headquarters. Yeah. yeah like a, like I love flagships still, yeah. you know? Um, and I get like the coolness of like, it's here today, gone tomorrow. It's almost like food truck culture where like yeah. you got to chase them on Twitter and find right. out where they are. Like, I get there's a need for that always, but I also like the idea that there's like mainstay pillars too. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of that. Yeah. Yeah. So when like, um, I mean, you know why I'm going to say why yeah. <laughs> it, just, it just came to me. The reason why is because when you have a pop-up or a temporary thing, nothing matters like, because you know, it's going to go away. So every decision you make from the logo to the storefront, to the shopping bag, to the hanger, to the rack, Everything is temporary and it's not considered because it's going to go away. Mm-hmm. Once you sign a lease and a contract and you're th- that's your home, everything becomes highly considered. And I'm, Permanence. Yeah. Like you got to think about it. Like you got to think Ralph level now, yeah. right? Like shit. Like this is going to be passed on to my grandchildren potentially. And maybe it won't be, but you have to think that way. And I like when products are considered to that level versus like, we heat till Sunday. I don't care. Like, yeah. I don't care if this shit breaks. You know what I mean? Like, that just permeates throughout. I think it's more like, to go off of that. It's like, I think that when people have like a permanent thing, and like you said, like the Ralph Lauren example is really good because I think people start to think in terms of like, what should this store smell like? Exactly. You know, like you're yeah. thinking in a different dimension. Like, like even mall brands did that right. Where like, yeah. you, you know, what a, we all know what an Abercrombie store smells like. You yep. know what I mean? Yep. And that's a, branding. I mean, whether yeah. you love it or hate it, that's good branding. And you remember it. Yeah. And it sticks with you. Whereas like with a pop-up, it's like, yeah, no shit. They're hanging it from the same piping as, you know, every other pop-up. Yeah. Because like, can it you, has to be dissembled like that. Yeah. Can you Sunday imagine morning. like Visvim's store like being a pop-up? There'd be like Hiroki would kill himself. You know what I mean? Like he like his store is so curated to the next level. I remember yeah. one time, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a Visvim store, but like there's no music. Yeah. Right? There's no sound whatsoever. And um I was talking to Hiroki and I was like, hey, like, why don't you turn up the volume or like plug in an iPad and like play some music? And he's like, oh, the, we had long meeting. We decide no music. And I was like, okay, but why? And he's like, because we wanted to be about the product, not like you 
Chilling. having a good time. Yeah, like, and I was like, wow, they probably had like a five hour meeting to determine what we're gonna play and we're not gonna play anything. And here's the reasons why. Like, that's dope. You know, yeah. that like it's a yes or no question, and they had a yeah. five hour meeting about it. Yeah, <laughs> that, but that level of otaku ness is awesome. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty good. Yeah, I don't know. I, I always kind of like think back on like I like the example of Abercrombie is really kind of sticks out because like love it or hate it. There is a brand experience yeah. there. And what are sort of like the next level? Like you mentioned the academic stuff. What are some of the uh, experiential things that you think might be able to keep brick and mortar afloat going forward? I think it's just things that you still can't experience via digital, you know, right. and, and um, like the reason why food culture is so big right now, like why everyone's a foodie and why chefs are like rock stars now is because you, you can't get that through Instagram yet. Like you can see it, but if you want to try that restaurant in Scandinavia, you got to go on a plane and go there and eat it. You got to go to Noma, man. You got to go to Noma. You know what I mean? So like there's still no work around there. And I think as long as like designers can offer up that same sort of feeling um, of like, you got to be here to experience it, then we're always going to have an edge over Amazon. Yeah, and I think now, I guess, as we kind of come to the end of this segment, well, how would you introduce the business of hype? How would we lead into that? How can we prepare people for that sort of... Well, um, if scheduling goes right, business of hype will premiere this coming Sunday, right? Um, and uh, I purposely wanted to do it on a Sunday because I felt like, again, this is sort of dating me, but I remember the times where like, I would really look forward to the New York Sunday Times. Mm -hmm. And Sunday is sort of like your day where you're not caught up in work. You're also not caught up in like going out and socializing. Sunday is like your day, right? It's the day you sleep in, you have a nice breakfast, and it's your day to open up the paper and just like absorb, right? And maybe today that's an iPad or your Kindle. But I wanted Business of Hype to come out on Sunday because this is also reminiscent of like, um, find out what other people are going through. It's not just all about like, you're not alone in this. Like other people are going through the same ups and downs, heartaches, defeats, and victories that you are. Um, and I think if we all just sort of opened up, we can learn a lot from each other. So that's what the business of hype is all about. Well, thank you so much for coming in, man. Thank yeah. you so much for telling your story, sharing a bit with us. And we're looking forward to hearing more from the business of hype. Yep. Stay tuned guys. Thanks. <laughs>